what a great privilege it is to speak to you all. Uh, you all are an incredible group. Uh, yeah, I'm hyped up and mic'd up and all kinds of stuff. So um, I, I'm flying on all you know cylinders right now. So I'm doing great. Uh, back in 2016, maybe even in 2015, I'm not sure, we got an email from your uh, great dean here, Dr. Booth, an old friend of ours actually from seminary days back in the 1980s before some of you were even born. We were in grad school together. We were in doctoral programs together. And um, as was uh, Steve Parsons, Dr. Parsons as well back in those days. Uh, we, it was, and Glenn, you were there too. What, what a great gaggle we were back then. Uh, we, we knew each other, but we were in different programs. And of course, I was, Steve and I were more on the Old Testament side of things and, uh, and archaeology, and uh, y'all went another direction. Sorry about that. But um, you, you, we follow God, don't we? That's what we try to do. And uh, so uh, we got this email in, was it 2015 or 2016, saying, you know, uh, we, we've got this great Old Testament professor. Unfortunately, he's got to go to the United States every now and then because of uh, just the requirements, Dr. Peacock. Uh, and we have Old Testament classes that need to be taught, and we have some Christian education classes. My wife has a doctorate in Christian education. So they, uh, we were invited to fill in a couple of gaps up here. And we had the absolute most positive experience. Uh, from, the, from the moment Martha read that email, she said, we've got to do this. This is just a God thing. And so um, the Lord opened up doors for us to do that. And then uh, when we had round two come up, uh, we thought, oh, man, uh, that was a great warm-up back in 2016. Let's do the real thing now. And so uh, once again, when Dr. Peacock was required to go back to the States, we had the opportunity to be here for just a short period of time. But what a great gift to the Bergens this is. Uh, what we see up here is a heart for God, uh, set in a jewel case of, uh, of beauty all around. It's just an incredible opportunity to be up here. And I hope you all will appreciate what God has given you through the faculty and the staff out here, the administrators, and uh, through uh, the most beautiful scenery that you'll ever see in North America. Uh, so treasure it while you can. My wife and I do enjoy photography. Uh, I told my wife, that one of the signs that God wants us up here is that he'll give us new cameras. And so we got new cameras, so we had to come. We didn't have a choice. Uh, and so here we are. Uh, and uh, God has put the rainbow over this seminary. All we try to do is just capture it uh, to share with others. But it, it, that's God's gift to this school. And, um, and God's still at work in this school in, in many ways. The Old Testament is Jesus' testament. Uh, it points to Jesus in every way. May I suggest to you that every page of the Old Testament, in one fashion or form, does in fact lead us to Christ. You have to have eyes of faith. You have to have the eyes that Jesus had and that the apostles had to see it, but it's there. And when we learn to see the Bible through the eyes of the New Testament writers, we see that Jesus is all over the place. And we also see that Jesus is the, the, the perfect physical expression of the invisible God. Today, we're going to look at the God who painted a picture of himself 
in the Old Testament. God, a self-portrait. What a great name for a chapel. Um, the Sistine Chapel is one of the greatest art treasures in all of human history. And uh, perhaps some of you have had the, the privilege of visiting it before. I know I have, and it was awesome. Uh, I got to see it before they had cleaned up centuries worth of mud and uh, dirt and smoke on it and that sort of thing. It's, it's prettier these days. One of the centerpieces of the, of the Sistine Chapel is the portrait of God as drawn not by God himself, but by one of the world's great artists, Michelangelo. And what you see right here is Michelangelo's vision of what God looked like. In the United States right now, this is the year 2020, it's a, one of those years that's divisible by the number four, which means we have a presidential election, which means we have a lot of mudslinging and a lot of uh, horrible stuff going on politically. And it's on full display um, right now. But uh, what we also see is politicians who want to be in positions of power who will do their best to paint portraits of the other person that are so horrible that there is no earthly way you could possibly vote for a person like that slime ball over there that they have just portrayed. On the other hand, politicians who have enough money paint their own pictures of themselves. And they'll have beautiful 30-second advertisements, minute-long advertisements that talk about the incredible human beings there. They're angels. They're the gods come down to earth, the marvelous things they have done. And uh, they buy these advertisements for themselves and make themselves look incredible. There are a lot of things that have been said about God, both positive and negative, in human history. The one picture that I want to see of God, though, is the one that he painted of himself. Uh, God is the God of truth. And he's going he's to give himself to us like he really was. One of the greatest treasures of all the Bible is found in the passages we'll be examining shortly today. It's uh, in the book of Exodus. It's in the Torah. The first five books of the Bible are known as the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. From a Jewish standpoint, these five books constitute the centerpiece of all of human truth. Uh, and they are, if you were to think of all the 39 books of the Old Testament, they would be the five that constitute the bullseye of the Old Testament. They're, everything else centers around these these pages of Genesis 1 through Deuteronomy 34. Now, right smack dab in the middle of that is uh, the most important event from a Jewish standpoint that ever took place in all of history. 40% of the Old Testament of, of the Torah is devoted to telling the story of one year of Israel's history. That year is the year that Israel spent at Mount Sinai. And that what, what makes that so special is that God literally came down to earth uh, in, in a mysterious but true way and revealed himself and his law, to uh, that, the law that would guide Israel throughout all time. And Jesus would say the law that was fulfilled in him, the law that we are to live out through uh, in the law of Christ. At Mount Sinai, in that most important year in all of human creation from a Jewish standpoint, God did come down in Exodus 19. He did reveal the law to Moses. 
He also revealed, uh, <clears throat> gave uh, Israel an opportunity to reveal why it needed the law so badly. Moses was going back up onto, the, uh, onto that sacred mountain, Mount Sinai, to commune with God and to receive more of God's truth to guide the nation of Israel. While he was up on the mountain, the Israelites got sidetracked. Um, they, they said, Moses is out of here for a while, and we really need somebody to lead us, and we need a God to lead us, and I don't know where the, the Lord God is, but uh, help us out. Aaron, Aaron is Moses' older brother, and Aaron didn't know quite what to do, and so he uh, tried in an in, inadequate way to lead Israel to maintain a worship for God, <clears throat> but he, he wasn't thinking very well. And so he said, well, I'll tell you what, bring, bring all your gold jewelry. Uh, the Israelites had, uh, were slaves. They couldn't have owned jewelry on their own as former slaves in Egypt. But they had been given uh, gifts of gold, actually, gold earrings, jewelry of various sorts, that, that uh, these former slaves who'd never had a penny to their name now were able to wear. They, they felt like kings. And so they were wearing this stuff ostentatiously. And uh, Aaron said, give, give me that gold that you've got, and um, I'll throw it in the fire and see if we can come up with something. See, uh, we'll, we'll have an image for you to, uh, to, to remind you of God. I think that's what Aaron was trying to do. I don't think he was trying to create an actual idol. The problem is, when he tried to create a, a worship aid in the form of a golden calf, the Israelites immediately said, these are your gods, Israel, who have brought you out of Egypt. They started... Uh, using an object of, uh, to aid in worship as the object of worship. And it was a lot more attractive, a lot more interesting to them. And then they had a big pagan party, and they went back to the most uh, awful pagan ways that you could imagine and totally departed from the ways of God. At that holiest moment in the holiest year of Israel's history, they turned it into a pagan celebration. And God got really upset. Uh, that is not what he had in mind when he brought those slaves out of Egypt. When he took the descendants of Abraham, who were to be his sacred covenant people, uh, he had intended to make them a priest of the nation, a priesthood to the nations, to make them the people who would stand uh, as the intermediaries between God and humanity, and to uh, bring the rest of the world to a true knowledge of God, and to have an example set before them in godliness. And the Israelites were not doing that, and, and God became very upset. He ultimately judged Israel very severely because of that. Uh, and as that moment was coming to an end, we come and find ourselves with Moses alone on Mount Sinai. It's Exodus 33 at this point. Moses has just had the deepest prayer experience, the, the, the most uh, fascinating prayer experience of his life, I would suggest to you. In, the, uh, in Exodus 32 and 33. And he's on, the, he's on the backside of that now. And he's with God. And he says, there in Exodus 33, 12, now that the worst of the crisis has passed, Moses said to the Lord, Holman Christian Standard Bible, an extinct Bible, by the way, these days, but it's my nicest leather copy, and so until it wears out, I'm going to use it. My wife gave it to me. So, uh, in my out-of-date book here, Exodus 33, 12, Moses said to the Lord, Look, you've told me, lead this people, 
but you've not let me know by whom you'll send, uh, whom you will send with me. You said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, if I have indeed found favor in your sight, please teach me your ways, and I will know you and find favor in your sight. Now, consider that this nation is your people. Moses knew that in his position as God's uh, leader for his people in that day, at that time, he needed God to help him get through. But he needed also to have a clear vision of who God was. He needed, as he says here, to know the ways of God, to, to be able to follow the paths of God as he uh, led Israel to follow those paths as well. And so he said, God, if I'm, if I'm in this position, you've decided not to kill your people, you're going to work with them in the wilderness and bring them to the promised land and fulfill that Abrahamic promise. You are a faithful God in all of that. Uh, but I need, as your, as your constituted leader over my people, I need some help. I need to know how you do things. And God said a fascinating response in verse 14. My presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. That word presence uh, is actually not what the Hebrew says. Uh, one, one of the terrible truths of Bible translation is that you have to lie to, get, uh, to make things understandable to people. Uh, you have to fake people out in terms of what the Hebrew really says. Uh, but because no one wants to read a language that goes the wrong direction from right to left and doesn't have any characters that you can recognize and no recognizable vocabulary terms. You can lie all you want and people will never know it. And so uh, what the Hebrew really says in verse 14 is actually something a little cooler, just harder to understand. God said, my faces will go with you. My faces will go with you. And uh, what does that mean? Well, first of all, uh, face is the idea of one's presence. If I'm looking directly at someone, that means you are the one I am paying attention to. And you can see me, and you can be guided by my face. The first thing that babies look at uh, as they're newborns is the face of their mother, probably, uh, or some doctor, but mostly their mom, and particularly the eyes. Uh, the human beings are just pre-coded to pay attention to faces and particularly to eyes. And we, we learn that even before we're born, but we practice it from the moment of birth onward. We look at a person's face. And when a person gives us their face, we sense that we have their attention and we have the opportunity to know who they are, to, uh, to, to learn who they are as a person. Faces are very complex. They, they convey huge amounts of emotion and um, all kinds of uh, attitudes toward things. Uh, they're, they're amazing gifts from God. And God said, I will give you my face. My face will go with you. Uh, that suggests that God would be paying attention to Israel at every moment. And likewise, that Israel... Was to, was to look on the face of God, was to, was to be paying attention to God. And Moses went on to say in verse 15, if your face does not go with us, if your presence does not go with us, don't make us go up from here, 
How will it be known that I and your people have found favor in your sight unless you go with us? I and <clears throat> your people will be distinguished by this from all the other people on the face of the earth. Moses said, uh, there, he recognized a truth that we recognize in the New Testament as well. And that is that Christians, the moment you become a Christian, you don't weigh more or weigh less. You don't get a six-pack if you're a guy, okay? Uh, a nice set of, of muscles on your, on your gut there. Uh, be nice if you, if you would. You don't add 30 points to your IQ. You don't add $30,000 to your bank account. Uh, but something really true does happen. The, the absolute moment that you become a Christian, you have the presence of God in you. You have the Holy Spirit. You have God with you. And that is the one and only thing that distinguishes Christians from non-Christians. The, the, the tricky thing about that is that it's an invisible sort of thing. God cannot be seen. And, so, um, and yet, he's a genuine presence in your life. So how, how can people know that the presence of God is with you? Well, that's, uh, that's the trick of the Christian life. It's called disciple. It's called learning, seeing him, and then imitating him. There are a lot of things about God that we can't imitate. Uh, I'll never be omniscient, omnipotent, or omnipresent, thankfully. Okay, that would take a lot of work, and I can't eat enough uh, chocolate chips at night to to empower myself to do all that. I like to eat chocolate chips at night. Frozen chocolate chips. Uh, they last. They last longer. Uh, um, I can't tell you how many hundreds of pounds I've eaten over the years, but it's a lot. But I, even if I ate all of it at once, I couldn't be omnipresent, omnipotent, and uh, omniscient. But, but God can. But there are certain qualities about God that he does ask us to imitate. And really, in many ways, Jesus giving a human face to God shows us the qualities that, in many ways, can be imitated. We still can't imitate all the things of, of Jesus. Uh, but... Uh, but we can most of them. Uh, he said we can even do miracles. I'm, I'm, I'm not a miracle worker. But there are, but there are people throughout uh, biblical history in the New Testament who, who were able to do the work of Christ in an ongoing way. Jesus said you could do even greater things. But we have in the Old Testament a plea from Moses saying, I need your presence to go with us. That's the only thing that's going to set the people of God apart from anybody else. So please, give us your face. Give us your presence. And the beautiful response of God in verse 17 is this. I will do this very thing you have asked, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. You know, it's so easy for us who live in cultures that have trashed the concept of holiness, that have uh, trashed the concept of sacred space and sacred people and all that sort of thing, to, to not catch the full significance of, of what God is saying right here. And, and because I'm a child of a culture like that, I'm sure I don't fully understand it either. But uh, in, in the Old Testament, the understanding was that there is a power pyramid in human society and a power pyramid in all of reality. At the top of that power pyramid, on the earthly level, is a king. Kings were... Uh, had to claw and kill their way and um, hurt people to get to the top of that power pyramid. But once they got there, 
they would stay in power by forcing everybody to be afraid of them. Uh, therefore, to be uh, the, t the king in, a, in an ancient society in Western Asia, you had to be willing to torture anybody and to kill anybody who didn't do exactly what you wanted them to do, who did not bow down to you. There's an expression in uh, one of the old Amarna letters that talks about uh, mayors of cities in Canaan putting their nose in the dirt seven times before Pharaoh. Uh, you, when, when a great man would come by, the guy at the top of the power pyramid would come by, you would have to uh, show that you were scared to death of them, that you reverenced them as though they were a god. And so you wouldn't look in their eyes, you would not speak their name, uh, you would you would just be, the, the, you would be in the dirt, the place of shame uh, before them. And as long as you acted like that, then the guy at the top of the power pyramid might let you live. Uh, but if you ever cross him in any way, uh, in the book of Esther, for example, if you entered his room without, a, uh, without permission, you could be killed. Uh, if you spoke to him without permission, he, he could order you to die because he's the one who calls the shots at all times. Now, project that beyond a, an earthly king and put God at the top of that pyramid and now you have the Old Testament image of how great and powerful and scary the creator God of the universe was. As, as scary as an earthly king might be and as powerful as they would project their image to be, the Lord God of creation was infinitely more than that. And for a person at the top of the, of the universal power pyramid, for the, the creator God who could destroy whole planets anytime he wanted to, for him to know you, a mere speck of dust on planet Earth, by name, that just blows you away. How could there be a God who would be so powerful and yet so caring about the individual that he would know someone by name? President Trump does not know me, I will tell you that, and probably never will, even though I probably will vote for him. Um, but, uh, it, but I'm not important enough. There are 330 plus million other Americans for him to be concerned about, and he doesn't have time for me. But the great truth of the Old Testament is that the, the guy who's infinitely more powerful than Trudeau or Trump or anybody else does have time for me and does know me by name. Moses said it was for him, but the larger truth of the Bible is that this is what God does for all of us. Moses, hearing those words in verse 18, says, please, let me see your glory. Uh, the word glory right there also means weightiness in the Hebrew. Let me, see, let, let me see your weightiness. Weightiness can be a physical sort of thing. Uh, one of the ways that you would show your glory and your importance, your social importance, is you would weigh more than other people. Uh, kings uh, in the Old Testament would uh, have access to more food, whether it be meat, which is the, the premium uh, food product, or whether it be uh, the best of grains or fruit or anything like that. And so uh, kings were supposed to be glorious. They were supposed to be overweight, and so uh, it, was a, it was a big deal. To, to have extra weight on your body. It was a sign of uh, your social importance to have extra weight on your body. You had the privilege of eating food that no one else could have because of your great position. Think about even in Eastern Asia, the Buddhas. There are one or two skinny Buddhas 
But most Buddhas are fat. Why? Because that's a sign of blessing upon them. It's a great thing to have this. Uh, to have this. And that was certainly true in ancient Israel. Let me see your weightiness. Well, there's a weightiness of the body, but there's a weightiness of, of one's social uh, importance and really of, of one's essence. Moses wanted to see the full impact of the divine being. He wanted to see just how glorious, how weighty God really was. And so God responds. Uh, prayer is supposed to be, and, and Moses is in prayer with God right here. Prayer is supposed to be a conversation. And he hears this from God. I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I'll proclaim the name Yahweh before you. I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. But, he answered, you cannot see my face, uh, for no one can see me and live. But the Lord did say this, and I love the fact that God really does want to be known. We don't have a God who wants to hide himself and never be known. Uh, the agnostics have missed it. Uh, God has revealed himself. And Moses experienced that. The Lord said, here's a place near me. You're to stand on the rock, and when my glory passes by, I'll put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I'll take my hand away, and you'll see my back, but my face will not be seen. Moses wanted to see the face of God. In fact, uh, really almost contradictorily and um, in this larger three-chapter section, 32 through 34, it says that Moses saw God face to face, or faces to faces, actually, uh, expressing the complexity with that plural there. Uh, Moses saw God face to face. And yet, Mo while, Mo while Moses saw God face to face, as was expressed in the previous chapter, or in 33, the idea was um, he, he had the, he experienced the genuine presence of God, not the full presence of God, but the genuine presence of God. And God right here seems to be saying, Moses, if you could know all of who I am, it would literally blow your mind. It would literally kill you. Uh, I want to be known, but I also want you to live. And so we're going to work out a compromise here. Why don't I just pass by and at the same time also um, give you a self-description. I'll give you a self-portrait. Now, self-portraits are something that a lot of people have tried to <clears throat> do over history. I've got seven quick ones here that we can look at. And with Kathy's help, maybe we can uh, look at those. Some of you may know who this is uh, if you're in art history. Uh, who would that be, David? Any idea? That's Van Gogh. Okay, he was a, a, an interesting character. That was one of his many self-portraits. Uh, Here's another relatively, well, quite famous artist in Western tradition, uh, Rembrandt. This is an old uh, Rembrandt self-portrait here, we think. And then I've got some crazy ones. Uh, a lot of, everybody takes selfies these days. You don't take the, why bother to paint yourself when you can um, just take, snap your, snap a picture with your phone, and then you've got apps that can mess it up if you want to, but just take crazy these are old-fashioned selfies, okay, uh, back when people actually painted things. Got a few more. Let's just run through a couple of these. Here's, here's a complex one. Here's, here's some troubled student, probably. I, uh, they painted a picture with words. I see anxious. I see home. There's a lonely student. Uh, tests. Anyway, uh, there's a self-portrait of a, a, a typical student right there. 
Uh, here's a, a more, I don't know what, what would you say about that face? Uh, there's a complex face for you, but a serious, uh, intelligent woman. Uh, here's <coughs> students after tests. There's a typical example of a student after a test. And then here's, I don't know what this guy's doing. Here's a student on drugs right here. And, uh, and then we, but then after all that, we get to uh, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Let's see if we can't pick up some key, uh, key aspects of God's own self-description right here. As promised, the Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed. Here's his self-portrait in words. Holman Christian Standard Bible does it correctly, actually, in this case. Uh, many versions will say as the first four words there, the Lord, the Lord. What the Hebrew says is Yahweh, Yahweh. Uh, the first two words in God's self-portrait are two of the most shocking words of the entire description. It's God's chosen personal name. As a teacher, especially at Hannibal LaGrange, working with undergraduate students for 32 years, neither my wife nor I um, allowed our students to call us by our first name in class. We expected there to be a social distance. We expected a level of respect. We uh, knew that our students would use far more than our first name to describe us after class, but in class, they were only allowed to use our title and our name, Dr. Bergen, okay? And once they graduate and we need their money as alumni, we can call us by their first name, and that's fine the day after they graduate uh, because we do want their money. But in the meantime, we, we do not let them use our first name. Uh, we want distance. We want uh, separation. And um, normally, the guy at the top of the power pyramid would not allow people uh, to use his first name. They could call him Hamelech, the king, O king. Uh, they could call him uh, other terms of authority and power, but never by their first name. And, and yet, the guy at the, at the universal power pyramid, the first thing he says to Moses is, Moses, I want you to know me by name. I know you by name. Now, I want you to know me by name. And I am giving you permission to use my first name in speaking to me. I want you to, to know me on that most personal of levels. I, I don't want distance between you and me. Ultimately, in the New Testament, that distance will be overcome by God choosing to tent inside of us, the Holy Spirit abiding in us. I think, uh, why, why does that name show up twice? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us, but I think it's because Moses was so shocked that God said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not kidding. Yahweh, Yahweh, go ahead and use it uh, because I want, to be, I want to be that close to you and I want you to be that close to me. What is the God of the Old Testament? He's a God who wants to reveal himself. He's a God who wants to be known and to be communicated with on the most personal of levels. Prayer is to be personal communication between you and God. Next line, next, next thing. Adonai, Adonai El, third word in, the, in this self-description, is actually a generic term, a short generic term for deity. Um, while one, one of the knife edges that Christians have to walk on is the one that separates 
the concept of a, a personal intimate God with the creator God of the universe who's more than 80 billion light years in, <laughs> in width, okay? Uh, a God who is bigger than the known universe, okay? And how in the world you can have a God who keeps track of little neutrinos, the very extremely tiny little particles of energy in our world, who can keep track of all the uncounted numbers of neutrinos, and at the same time keep track of entire universes simultaneously, who can be infinite and personal at the same time. Uh, it, it's a contradiction, and yet both are realities of, of the true God. Uh, it's one of those fascinating uh, challenges, mysteries of the Bible how, in, that, uh, that takes us really back to pages one and two of the Bible. Page one, we have the infinite El, the infinite God, who's, who speaks universes into existence. On page two of the Bible, we have a God who is so intimate that he has to get mud under his fingernails to create a human being. That's a personal God. And that's the God of the Bible. And that's the God who describes himself to Moses right here. Adonai, Adonai, El. So when you've got a God who is infinitely huge and infinitely personal to keep track of the smallest details of the smallest particles of reality, um, is he a good God or a bad God? Well, he's certainly powerful. He's certainly scary. I can certainly hide nothing from him. Uh, so the fourth word of, of God's self-description is another shocker to me, compassionate. The good news is that monster God out there is a good God, but not just a good God. That term compassionate actually is the term rachum. An alternate pronunciation of that word, rechem, means womb, W-O-M-B, uh, that part of a human, uh, of a female human anatomy in which an unborn little tiny baby preborn state will receive every nutrient that it needs and be kept at exactly the right temperature, have every fluid that it needs, every, everything that is necessary to allow it to grow to become a, a being that can live and breathe oxygen. Uh, every, every need will be met inside of that womb. And God said, my fourth word that I'm going to use to describe myself is the wombed one. That doesn't mean that God is a woman. It does mean, I think, and, and we struggle with how to translate that, but the concept seems to be compassionate. Uh, what, that is, one who is aware of the needs and meets the needs. One who, uh, and as a call passive participle, it, uh, it means it's just baked into God's essence. This is who God is. God is one who meets our needs, okay? Uh, as perfectly as the mother's womb meets the needs of the unborn uh, on its journey to life outside the womb. The next word, chanun, rahum uh, v'chanun. That would be uh, in the previous one, uh, going back to the previous slide, gracious. Uh, the term Hannah comes from this. Uh, some of you probably know people with the name Hannah. That term is actually a Hebrew. It's one of the few words that comes to the English language from the Hebrew. Mostly names and words like hallelujah and amen come from Hebrew. But 
But Hannah is one of those terms, and it, it is the concept of undeserved kindness, uh, where you don't deserve someone to do something nice to you, but they do it anyway. And it's not because of anything you have done. It's just because of who they are. They're nice people, and so they do nice things. And so the, the next word that God gives us is that he is a, he's a God who does nice things, a God who likes to be nice. Uh, in the ancient world, uh, kings always liked to be thought of as, first of all, desperate killers that you need to, to fear with your life, but second, as really nice guys. And so on the very day, for example, that Nebuchadnezzar ordered the death of all of his astrologers and wise men, he, he proved he was a nice guy by letting Daniel live one more day. Uh, that's how nice kings were back in those days. Uh, they would give one day of extra life uh, to, to somebody before they killed him, uh, before they tortured him and killed him. Uh, but, uh, but the God of the Bible also, at the, at the ultimate apex, is a God who has baked in him hanun, again, a call patch, a participle, um, this concept of niceness. In his essence, at his heart, he is a God who will give us better than we deserve. Next slide tells us something else about it. Erechapayim. The phrase right there literally, and again, we dare not let you know what it says in the Hebrew because you'd laugh, and we don't want you to laugh at this point. It, length of two nostrils is what it says literally in the Hebrew. Erechapayim, length of two nostrils. Now, uh, that doesn't make any sense to Westerners. But uh, from this Western Asian perspective, the face, again, a very complex expression of a person's essence, uh, would turn red when people got angry, when they got upset. Uh, a lot of us turn a little bit red when we get embarrassed or when we get angry, one of the two. To have a face that did not turn red would be to be slow of two nostrils, okay? To be a patient person who just didn't get flustered and didn't get uh, overwhelmed with uh, emotion in a negative sense, one who is slow to anger. Isn't it great uh, to have a God who doesn't kill us the first time we do wrong? Sometimes he does. I mean, he has the right to do that. But for the most part, we have a God. All of us are in this room because God was patient with us. He was length of two nostrils, okay? Uh, he was, uh, he, didn't, he didn't freak out when we did something wrong. Parents have to deal, have, have to acquire this um, early on if they're gonna be good parents because kids just naturally do stuff that turn our faces red with anger. And so finding ways not to freak out when kids do stupid stuff, and we won't go into details of all that, uh, is, is a virtue for a good parent. And in fact, it's necessary. Otherwise, you may end up in jail or have your kids taken away from you. But I will tell you that, the, that God is the one who models this most perfectly. He is slow to anger. And more than that, as we quickly work our way toward the end, he is also Rav Chesed Ve'emet. Uh, the highest virtue in all of ancient Israel was uh, a term uh, that is pronounced in Hebrew, Chesed. The term is such a huge term that there's no way that Bible translators can handle this word. Faithful love is not a bad way to do it, but it, the idea is, it's a God, it, chesed is the concept of making a commitment to another person 
and then and in a good way, commitment for their welfare, and then keeping that commitment no matter how high a price you have to pay to keep that commitment. If you're a parent, you get that brand new little baby like uh, John had born. Yes, was it yesterday? Yeah, y'all are y'all are in the baby making phase of life, many of you, and and it's a fascinating time, but. Um, you don't, you don't know what you're getting yourself into. It is so expensive to raise a kid. You have to stay up so many nights uh, when they get sick. You get so worried about it. And, and yet, as a parent, you say, you can have everything in my checkbook. In fact, you can have everything on my credit card right down to the end of the spending limit. Uh, if that's what it takes to keep you alive and healthy and, and raise you right. I don't care how many nights I've got to get up in the middle of the night or my, I'm going to make my wife get up in the middle of the night and, and make her take care of this. But we're going, to, we're going to see you through because we've made a commitment to you when we had you. And it's a commitment that we will keep or we will die trying. And that's chesed. That's what God gives you. Wow. Truth. The term means firmness. You ever had somebody who tells you a word, but you know you can't put much weight on that word because it's going to fall through? They're, they're going to tell you something, but they're not going to do it. Or maybe they'll do it, but probably they won't. Well, that's not, that's not this concept here. The term emmet right here means firm. If God says something is right, it's right. If he tells you he's going to do something, he's going to do it. Uh, God is a God who pays any price, even the death of his own son to help you. He is a God who, when he makes a promise, he can bank on it. It's going to happen. Truth. And, next slide, he is one who maintains faithful love to thousands. You know, human beings are finite. I can make, I can make a commitment at the level of chesed. I can make a faithful love commitment to basically one or two people. My wife, uh, marriage love needs to be chesed-style love, where you make a commitment to that spouse to death and it doesn't yeah it may mess up your career a little bit you think it's really not in God's eyes messed up you may think it's going to cost you too much money to be good to your spouse or too much patience or whatever they don't deserve that much well chesed says uh, you make that commitment to your spouse and to your to your immediate family especially your kids and you keep those commitments no matter what but I can't keep it to more than a very few people the cool thing about the Lord God of the universe is that he can make that level of commitment to me and to you and to infinite numbers of thousands of other people. How one being can be chesed loving to every human being is beyond me. It would take a God as bigger than the universe to do that. But guess what? We got one. It would take a God more in touch with the details than I could ever be. But we've got one. And God maintains that faithful love, not just to me or to you, but to everybody. And there's something else here. We have a God who, who lifts away wrongdoing, whether it be rebellion, the worst possible revolt where you're spitting in God's eye and kicking his shins and throwing dirt in his face, or whether it be simply trying to do the right thing. Chata is the idea of I'm aiming the arrow right at the tree, but I didn't make the arrow right, and so it's not going straight, and so I missed the target. Um, I'm trying to do the right thing, but I still messed up. 
Well, that's still wrongdoing. If you're the guy at the power apex, you didn't do it the way he said to do it, so he has the right to kill you. And yet, the truth of the God of the universe is that he forgives all wrongdoing. There is no sin that is too big that God will not forgive it. But there's also no sin too small for God to require forgiveness if you, don't, if you sin. God, re, God requires a level of perfection that human beings can't meet. But he also forgives. And there is no level of forgiveness, big or small, that God will not forgive. Very quickly, the last, the last portion of it. We have a God of justice. I want a God who isn't going to be just uh, a guy who gives out free candy to everybody. I want a God who stands for what is right and true and does not compromise. I want a guy who can build laws of gravity that I can build scientific projects around that is so reliable in terms of doing things in a consistent way that he never compromises whatsoever. Without that, we don't have a universe that works. He does not leave, he will not leave sin unpunished. Sin is never acceptable to God. It will be punished. Someone's going to have to pay the price. It may be you or it may be the blood of Jesus that pays for your sin. But, this, but God will exact justice. And it will go on like ripples in a pond, bringing the consequences of a father's wrongdoing on children, grandchildren, third and fourth generations. Don't think that your actions do not matter. You might say, it's just a small sin. I can get by with it. It's just a little bit of pornography or whatever it might be. I can get by with it. Um, and yet God says, nope, even the smallest sin still is a sin. And it will create a ripple in the pond that will affect the way that, uh, through the example that you set, if nothing else, that will make it easier for your kid to sin. It will make it easier for your grandchildren to sin. It will make it easier for that generation that you will never see to sin. Before you commit even the smallest of sins, remember, you're creating pain for your kids, your grandkids, and your great-grandkids, and who knows how many generations beyond that. These are the ones that God listed right here. Every behavioral choice you make matters to God. Never compromise. God says, live like me, and, that, and follow the example of Jesus. And when we do that, it's an amazing challenge in life. God's self-portrait from the Old Testament, thank you for sharing it with me today. Let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, I need, I need a God in my life, and the only God worth worshiping is the one who just described himself in his sacred word. Thank you for being the infinite El. Thank you for being the infinitely finite, the, the, the infinitely personal Yahweh. Thank you for being a good God and a God of love and forgiveness and grace and compassion and also a God of justice who never compromises on the truth or the right way. Lord, may you be our God, each of us individually today. And may we, as your representatives, point others to you and make them want to worship you as much as you want them to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.